0: This is Retake, and we're here to talk about the cinematic arts. That includes new films, old films, animated films, live-action films, comic book films, TV shows, 90s films, and Christmas classics. And in this episode, we've been left home alone, and we're setting up traps, uh, glass ornaments under the window, paint cans are swinging around, the banisters, and we're going to go nuts. (laughs) Uh, We're going to catch the criminals trying to steal our treasures. I'm Joe Darnell. And I am one of the home defense specialists today. And joining me this week is my co-host, TJ Draper, and our special guest, Chad Hopkins. Hi, Joe. Hey there. Good evening. It is great to have everybody together again. It's just like a uh, yesteryear when we used to do a podcast.
1: It's Christmas time at retake. It is. Woo-hoo. Break
0: out the wassail. <laughs> um, we have a podcast to do. Uh, this is Home Alone. Not one of my favorite films, but I can oh, definitely Joe. understand why it's such a big deal to Joe, people like TJ.
1: You're killing me, Joe. What do you mean not one of your favorite films? I was
0: really a big fan of the movie growing up. I don't know. Maybe Macaulay Culkin's later career just left a bad
2: aftertaste oh, in my mouth. Well, I don't know.
1: You got to ignore that. Chad, Chad, we can, we can kind of uh, ignore Joe's uh, dislike of this film, I think, can't we?
2: I think so. There's a
0: lot to love in this movie. Yes. Okay, yes. Chad, all I want to know is how do you explain yourself? No, uh, we'll talk about this movie instead. I, I think um, I think there is space for love-hate relationships with movies and this is one I certainly have. It's um, one of those things that I liked a lot when I was a kid. I liked the talk boys in Home Alone. Oh, that was so cool. But that wasn't in this movie, was it? It was in the next one.
1: Yeah, well, I, pre- I like to pretend the other Home Alones don't exist. That's what I like to do.
0: Mm. <laughs> I didn't remember that this movie came out in 1990. I thought of it as a Ninety three or nine to four film. Yeah,
1: it's 1990.
0: And it's uh, directed by Chris Columbus. I like some of his other stuff. He's done some interesting things. And we have here that on record, it was production. Its production budget was 18 million dollars. That's a uh, cool cash right there. And uh, it grossed worldwide four hundred and seventy six million point seven. So that's uh, seven hundred thousand uh, dollars. That's a lot of money and i can see why i remember it was a big deal in those days you got to remember that we had a hot christmas movie maybe once every th- 4 years back in those days
1: I really and there was always C-
0: there were christmas movies every year but chad you, you you never missed one when you were in diapers you remember they just weren't <laughs> all that interesting back then right and this was one that really uh, stood the test of time so i can see why it works for old and newer audiences.
1: I, I think so. The uh, to continue with the stats of the film, the cast was Macaulay Culkin, Joe Pesci, Daniel Stern, John Hurd, Catherine O'Hara, and Roberts Blossom. Uh, I is that right? Is it Roberts? I didn't put these in here. Chad, you put these in here.
2: <laughs> there might have been a slight talk. no. It is Roberts. I just double checked. Okay,
1: uh, strange. And the composer is one of your favorites, Chad. It's yes, John sir. Williams. John Williams himself, the man. All right, and let me tell you just a little bit about the storyline, and then we're going to dive right in. An eight-year-old troublemaker must protect his home from a pair of burglars when he is accidentally left home alone by his family during Christmas vacation. Chad, what is your relationship with this film? You're the the guest. You get to go first.
2: Well, you know, probably growing up, I watched it every now and then. We had it on VHS. I think I'm actually more familiar with Home Alone 3 from when I was Ah. a kid because- Uh, you know, this actually, this movie came out two years before I was born and home alone three was a little bit closer to the release in my childhood. And so that's what I was more familiar with growing up, but I mean, it's sort of the same jokes, same basic premise, but, uh, this one, I, I think it's just hard to beat the classic hard to beat the original. And so over the years, this has definitely been the one to capture my attention the most and make me laugh the hardest and, uh, just be a staple of Christmas time every year.
1: It's certainly a staple of Christmas time for me as well. Joe, do you have any negative thoughts you want to put into the world about this film?
0: No, I mean, when I was a kid, I I thought this fu- film was just so fun. I felt like Macaulay Culkin's character Kevin was my older brother and <laughs> spiritually we would have been great troublemakers <laughs> together. <laughs> I, I don't feel that way now. I I I, I kind of like roll my eyes about a lot of the stuff I do appreciate. The what the slapstick humor, the cheeky humor, the snarky humor is doing throughout. It's the kind of stuff that uh, harkens back to older films, Abbott and Costello and the Three Stooges at times, but then it's also playing up like a uh, Tom Sawyer, you know, shenanigans and what would a boy do on his own. I find it interesting just how little the boy actually interacts with other people, and it's still a very entertaining film just to watch what the boy winds up doing on his own, and it doesn't grow dull because. He is just the kind of kid you'd expect to talk to himself, Are you and he gets away with it.
1: Kevin McAllister, the boy.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm an old man now, TJ.
1: <laughs> it's Kevin, man. It's Kevin. Kevin's definitely
2: very uh, Ferris Bueller-esque in many aspects of the movie, and the talking to himself just sort of fits into that, and that's appropriate because I mean, isn't j- uh, Ferris Bueller is a John Hughes movie as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yes. he
1: wrote this script as well for for Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it definitely feels in that
2: same vein and so the character of Kevin just feels like Ferris Bueller 10 years younger.
1: Mm. Yeah, so there's for this film definitely has some nostalgic uh button pushing for me. Uh because I kind of grew up with it as a kid. I was, you know, I was a kid when it was released. I was born in 82. It came out in 1990, so I would have been Kevin's age when it came out. And uh it just sort of uh I, I guess resonated with me in a way. And uh, it was really fun. I, I watched this film last night and uh, it was really fun to let my eight and 10 year olds uh, watch it for the first time last night. And they loved the heck out of this film. Um, I, I think I've shared before, I don't remember if it was on, I, don't, I know it wasn't on retake. I'm pretty sure it was at some point in, in Movie Bite when we talked about um, a film that I took my daughter to see and she would, I talked about how she would, uh, sit up on the edge of her seat and, uh, and, uh, you know, clap her hands and stuff. This was for Cinderella. And it was the same sort of experience last night when I let Alan, my oldest, uh, my oldest boy, and then, uh, Nat- Natasha, my second oldest uh, girl, and they watched it and they were laughing in all the right places. And they were, uh, just, just hy- laughing hysterically at all the right jokes. And especially, you know, when he's defeating the uh, criminals and stuff, so that was a lot of fun and that uh triggered even more nostalgia for me last night because you know I I loved this film and laughed at this film through the years many times and uh I just uh, I don't know I connected with Kevin even though I was never I never would have been considered a troublemaker as a kid I was a I I I remember one time that I was sad and upset when I got a B instead of an A on one of my report cards. <laughs> like this is so I'm, I'm like the opposite of Kevin, but I don't know. I just I loved him and enjoyed him anyway. <laughs> uh, so so this film definitely has like a connection to me. I don't I don't pretend to be um, objective when it comes to this film, but at the same time I'm ready to I'm ready to fight you, Joe, when you say you it's not your one of your favorite films.
0: <laughs> I do appreciate that it was pretty novel back then. The boy taking on the the you the, know the criminals the and. I <laughs> do underestimating When him. Kevin
1: takes on the criminals. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: I don't have a problem with this person. He's Kevin. I know
1: <laughs> this. Uh, so um, one thing I noticed yesterday when I was watching it, and I'd be interested, uh, Chad, because I know you're a big Harry Potter fan as well, is it, there was, even though this isn't anything like Harry Potter in a lot of ways, it evoked like this Harry Potter feel. Like I think it was the combination of the music, John Williams' score and the fact huh. that it's Chris Columbus directing this thing, which he directed the first two Harry Potter films, and I felt a little bit like I was. It's was almost like, is he going to go? I mean, obviously, this is overstating the case. Is like, is he going to go to Platform Nine and Three Quarters any second now? Like, just right. the way the music would feel and stuff. I mean, it, it's it's very, it's very, it's very much a Chris Columbus film with a John Williams score. You know?
2: Yeah, I the, can see that. the The soundtrack for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone has a track called Christmas at Hogwarts. And there are ah, parts yes. of this score that fit right at home into that track. And in fact, while watching it earlier today, uh, at the very end of the film when he wakes up Christmas morning, I actually started singing the bum 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 and the the, the the soundtrack that actually plays during the part where Harry Potter wakes up in the movie. Yes and yes. Uh, it, it just fits fits right in, it feels right at home and uh it's funny that Chris Columbus directed it because he works really well with children. Uh um, right and Feel it—it it has its fingerprints all over it, basically, and uh, yeah, I, I definitely see that comparison and felt it myself while watching.
1: Yeah, and 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 too, I think it—it it makes it more like triggers. I—I uh, don't know exactly what I'm trying to say because it's not the same film or same setting, obviously, at all. But I mean, it triggers like some of the same emotional responses in me, I guess. And you know, it's just it, it hits all those same little points and buttons, and um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And and uh, I really. I don't know. It, it's just it's such a fun movie.
0: I'm really surprised by the response for it because I, I thought that these films were more popular, the first two especially. Yeah,
1: yeah, me too. I was I was looking at Rotten Tomatoes and it's sitting at fifty five percent, and that is just not acceptable to me.
0: Seventy nine percent isn't terrible for the audience either, but that's still a little lower than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I figure it is a classic like what is the one that everybody likes, uh, the Christmas Story. It's a uh, it's maybe not as renowned as that film, but it's still pretty high up there.
1: So Roger Ebert is listed on Rotten Tomatoes as giving it a, a rotten score, um, which on his site he rated it. Chad, you pointed out uh, two and a half stars, I think, yeah, out of two four? and a half
2: out of his four four star rating.
1: Right. So that's a little interesting, but he did spend a lot, an overtly amount of negative time reviewing in, in his review. I'm just wondering what drives uh, something so fun and. Uh, just like what what's driving the negative reviews behind this film?
2: A lot of what he says in his review is talking about the sort of believability of the setting and the the whether we believe and think it's plausible that this little eight year old kid could set up this torture house for these two robbers, you know. And can I
1: can I, can I just say missing the point?
2: <laughs> well, uh, definitely. I mean, I I understand his criticism because I mean, really, how likely is this to happen? But that you're right, it misses the point. The point of this movie is because it's it's fun and it has some heart in it too. It's not just bangs and crashes and slips and slides. It's yeah. it's got a little bit of heart to it too, but the the other stuff is what people come back to it for.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and I think I think that um cuz I did read uh, Roger Ebert's review and I just thought, man, he's he's really just missing it here. And and one of the things that I love about this film is that it does, like you said, Chad, it does have heart. Um it does have the story that behind that's going on. It's, sure, there's the slapstick stuff, and there's the implausibility of the scenario, and all that. All that makes the film great, in my opinion. Uh, especially when you know Kevin is uh, you know taking the bad guys for a ride. Um, but but underlying this all is Kevin's journey, right? Where he he, he and in. Chris Columbus has many things, but, but not subtle. He's not subtle at all. And, no. And uh, so that he paints it right on, the, right on the top of the film that you can't miss it. Like Kevin, he says, I wish, you, I wish you guys would go away. I wish you weren't here. What, what are his exact words? Do you remember, Chad? You watched it more recently than I. Um,
2: <laughs> um, I. I can't remember.
1: I didn't want to see you again for the rest of my whole life. And I didn't want to see anybody else either. I hope you don't mean that. Yeah, but – and then basically he says that and his mother says, well, I hope you don't mean that, Kevin. And he's like, I do. I don't want to I, – I wish that you – none of you were here basically. And, and he wakes up and he's like, I made my family disappear.
2: see there's a memorable quote
1: (laughs) yes yeah and he looks right you know it's he looks right at the camera and those eyebrows doing the macaulay culkin thing and he's like i made my family disappear so so that's the start of kevin's journey is he wishes his family weren't there he wishes he didn't have to deal with them. he wanted to live by himself and he gets his wish and he goes through this journey of realizing that uh I mean, yes, in a in a way, he's self sufficient. He goes grocery shopping. He gets what he needs. He even almost defeats the robbers that are trying to rob his house. When he, you know, and except for one miscalculation at toward the end, um, he he really you know d- does all that. And yet he realizes that no, it really wasn't a good thing that he made his family disappear in his mind. That's what happened. It, it was not a good thing. And this is the journey that he's on. His family is not so bad, and he really does love them after all. And that's really embodied in this uh, scene when he, I think he comes to this realization as as he's telling old man Marley, you know, you really should call your son and, and reconcile with him because it's not worth it, you know. It it's he's he's giving this wisdom, and I think that's when he comes to this realization as well. And so there is some depth there that I I think that uh, these inter, these these reviews and these these lower Rotten Tomatoes scores that are reading is just like. How did they miss this? <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't get it.
2: <laughs> he has this weird sort of self-aware adult quality um, without ever leaving the believability of being a child. So he'll go from going to the grocery store and buying juice and laundry detergent and all this other stuff that you need to just be a basic human being living by yourself. But right. then at the same time, when he's in trouble and uh, when, things, when things sort of go south for him, he's calling out for his mom and I, I I think he flips that switch very, very well, and I never doubt the fact that he's a child with childlike qualities, but at the same time he's able to uh, sort of hold his own and he definitely proves that by taking down these bad guys. So
0: what do you think about the casting? because I appreciate the heart and soul being good, but it sometimes falls flat when it feels like it's a little bit of a cardboard cutout story. Uh, I mean I'm not trying to hyper criticize this film. I like it. I enjoy it for what it is. It's fun. It's entertaining. I get it. It's got its place, and like some of that humor, uh, where the um, the looks on their faces and all, this feels kind of like uh, stage, a little o- uh, overly dramatic or uh, you know sensational when it doesn't feel realistic. It kind of counters the whole heart and soul that feels very down to earth. I don't know. Is it just me?
1: I think it's just you. I, you know, you <laughs> mentioned when you started this little thing about the casting, but I, I love every member of this cast. Um, you you've got Macaulay Culkin, of course, is is great. I, I couldn't see anybody else in this role. You got Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern, like doing this crazy criminal thing, like and and bouncing off each other. And you got Joe Pesci acting like he's the smarter one, but he's really not any smarter than uh, than yes, uh, right. the other guy. And it just it works so well. And you got Catherine O'Hara, who she really just sells this thing. Like she is this distraught mother who feels all this guilt. Of having left her son at home, like I, I can't see anybody else in these roles, and even even Buzz, you know the the ugh, the the <laughs> <laughs> nasty guy, like but he he plays that role perfectly. I I don't have any problems there. I'm not sure you, you kind of you talked about the casting, Joe, and then you kind of left that territory. So I'm not sure what other points I wanted to address, but I definitely wanted to address the casting. I I think it's great, okay.
2: Joe. I, I I see your criticisms, and I think that if it was a different film, then they would be criticisms for me as well. But in the film that we have and in the sort of feel that they're going for and in the story that they're telling, I think they all fit in perfectly. We want a little bit of over at the top because it's an over the top kind of film, but it's grounded in its message. Yep, I agree.
0: And what do you, what, how do you feel about like the, uh, the material? Would you call it, would you call it slapstick humor? Would you say that it's really clever with scenes and lines in general?
2: I would say that the slapstick here is it, it makes me laugh every time I watch it. I mean, hysterically laugh. I was watching it with one of my best friends earlier today and she was dying very close to dying because she was losing oxygen. <laughs> and um, I, I was right there with her. Oh I mean, it's, yes. it's it's just a funny film. The, the physical comedy in this is some of the best physical comedy I've seen. I, I have to admit that stunts do look pretty impressive.
1: I mean, there's definitely, Joe, some slapstick humor in this film. But to me, like there's a there's a line there's a when you're doing slapstick humor, there's a fine line between just taking it too far. And I I don't think this movie ever crosses the line. There's there's times when it pushes right up to that line, at least for my sensibilities, because um, there's times when it pushes up to that line and and it just sort of walks right up to it casually. And then it just kind of treads right on the edge of it. And it never really goes over it. Um, so I, I, I enjoy the humor in this film and, and, it, like I said, it worked really well for my kids for sure. And it reminded me of how much I loved it as a kid too, from their perspective. Um, I, I enjoy it, I would say in a different way now. Um, but yeah, it, it, it never crosses that line for me.
0: Something I do find fun is that it does really portray the nineties. There's not a lot of films I feel like really belong to that turn between the eighties and nineties, quite like this. And yeah, I know it's comedic and so it's not exactly faithful, but it's close enough. And I I always like stories that um, introduce a lot of creativity. So in general, um, like y'all mentioned earlier, a troublemaker that knows just how to torture a bunch of criminals with perfect setups around the home, maybe it's not the most believable because... He is so clever and he he's almost he almost seems experienced. And this isn't even the sequel um, in just how clever he is. But I I do like that. I I enjoy a film allowing people to be a little bit smarter than they would naturally be in the real world based on statistics and just the average boy. (laughs) Yeah, this kid is uh, he's clever Uh, and I like his ingenuity. Uh, maybe uh, there's more kids like him out there that are just the ones that talk to themselves and never share their brilliance with the rest of the world. They all wind up growing up and becoming Willy Wonka.
1: <laughs> there's times like my son Alan will come up with the cleverest way to put Legos together or these this the, you know these mashed together inventions of things. and so I can you know I can see Kevin's cleverness, not uh, Alan's cleverness, my my son, is in a different way. But I definitely see that sort of creativity that that we kind of lose as adults like those those criminals, you know, and, and believability of the story aside, if Kevin was able to pull this off, they didn't really see some of this stuff coming because they can't think on that level that Kevin can think on anymore. And that that kind of made it work. I mean, I know that, again, you know, Roger Ebert and believability, and I'm right there with him. It's not a believable film, but at the same time, there are aspects of it that make complete sense. And and I think that that's one of them.
2: If there's a, a line of believability that I feel the film ever crosses, where it crosses it for me is in the way his family treats him at the very start of the film. And there's mm. there's definitely a purpose to it. Like, I understand why he's treated so poorly, because we have to have him say the words to make the them forget him and to set the movie in motion. But at the start of the film, man, is he treated terribly. Um, his, his brother calls him a disease and his uncle calls him a little jerk. And his mother says, maybe you should just ask Santa for a new family. And I mean, at the start of the film, he is just in the worst family imaginable. And it, <laughs> it, it's just hard for me to watch in one respect just because... Wow, I, I hope my family never treats me like that, right? Um, so
1: I have a little bit of a different interpretation of that, if if you would allow me. Oh, um, for sure. So my idea, at least, this is kind of my headcanon. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but this is kind of the way I, I picture what's happening at the beginning of the film is we're seeing things from Kevin's perspective. Uh-huh. And when you, when you as a child, I'm sure you look at scenes in your head at the time, you thought, oh, this is evil and terrible. And this person said something awful to me. And then you as an adult, you look back and you're like, that's not the way that was at all. But we're seeing things the way Kevin was seeing them. And so it seems awful and life mm-hmm. doesn't seem fair and everything is just terrible and bad and awful. So my, my impression is that people weren't really like that to Kevin so much as that's the way he saw it. I don't know. Is that, is that, I think that's
2: awesome. As soon as you started saying, I have my own sort of hand cannon, I was like, oh, I see where he's going with this. <laughs> and I, I like that a lot. I think that's, that definitely puts things into a new light and makes me feel a little bit better knowing that his family really didn't treat him this poorly.
1: At the same time, his uncle Frank—I could believe he would say that <laughs> because look at the stuff he did on the plane. He was like, "Put that silver in your purse, put it in your purse," you know. And then he's the scene where he's like, "If it makes you feel any better, I forgot my reading glasses." <laughs> 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 uh yeah. So he's he's terrible, but um, you know, I. I, I I I really only have one dislike about this film. Uh, And I know as much as I've been praising it, Joe, I'm sure you'll find that hard to believe because you're like at the, when we started, even before we started talking about this, you know, before we started recording, you're like, I don't know guys, if I like this film that much, but I do have one dislike. And that is the scene that, that precedes uh, Buzz talking about old man Marley. So I like that part where he's putting these ideas in Kevin's head. But right before that, he's, he's asking his friend, is it true that the French don't shave their pits? And I hear they have nude beaches. And like, I didn't need that in the <laughs> film. I really didn't need that. Uh, and I suppose what they were doing was setting up the, uh, the joke. Well, I also don't like the joke, but they were setting up the joke where Kevin's rifling through stuff and he finds a Playboy magazine and he just tosses it aside and he's, Oh, gross, you know. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> this disgusting. And they were so there. I suppose that in some sense they were setting up that joke to see that of course well Buzz would have Playboy magazines. But I didn't need any of that. That was dumb. <laughs> it was yeah. it was pushing pushing a line for me. And I was afraid I was gonna have to explain what Playboy magazines were to my children. But <laughs> they didn't ask. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Dodged a <the> bullet <laughs> Yes, yes. But in general, like a lot of people, um, they don't want to let their children watch this film sometimes, at least people that I know who are pretty conservative and trying to raise their children right. They don't want to let their children watch this film because the criticism is, well, look at how how terrible and disrespectful Kevin is. And and like you said, Chad, look at the way his family treats Kevin that made him terrible and disrespectful. And all this is terrible and bad. And we don't want this uh, to be something that our children emulate. And I, as a parent, I get that, and I don't have any problem if you don't let your young children watch Home Alone, but I actually enjoyed using it as a teaching opportunity because I asked my kids. At one point in the film, I I turned to my – and they're eight. and I I didn't let my six-year-old, my my five-year-old, and my three-year-old watch it, but I did turn to – uh, Alan and Natasha, and I said, now, Kevin is, uh, he's not acting very well, is he? That's, that's not, that's not the way you're supposed to behave, is it? And they're both are like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and then I, I explained to them at the end of the film and I, I try not to beat, you know, like I try not to be, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? I try not to beat these things into my kids heads with, uh, you know, <laughs> with a sledgehammer basically, you know, overbearing. I try not to be overbearing about these sorts of things, but I did ask him at the end of the film. I said, so did, do you think Kevin learned a lesson? And they were like, yeah. I said, well, what was the lesson? And, uh, Alan got it. He was like, well, he shouldn't have treated his family like that. And he shouldn't have wished that they would go away. So, so I was actually happy to use it as a teaching moment. So that for whatever yeah, justification yeah. that is,
0: <laughs> well, that's true about a lot of movies, a lot of concerned, uh, conservative audiences will uh, find it difficult what they see in a film and they'll think, well, I, you know, I don't want to absorb those attitudes and those ideas and I don't want to pass those off to our kids or I don't want to recommend this movie because I see these things in a film. But they forget the context of the story and a lot of times those uh, behaviors they see in act one and the, the act two are uh, setting up the arc for the character and they're not like that come the end of the story. Right. You know, if... If um, Han Solo's arc was that he picked up a couple of strangers and took their money and he saved a a princess just for a reward and then he flew away in the Falcon and he never came back, then it would totally be true that Han Solo was just a scoundrel. Right. At the end of the day, we love him because he had a great heart change and you see that fulfillment pay off. So, yeah, everybody likes Han the scoundrel, but it only works if the guy was redeemed a little bit. And the same thing goes for characters like these. If, uh, if you cut off the story at just the right moment, then it would be, yeah, it'd be terrible to allow for these attitudes to pervade and uh, just to, to go on unchecked. But, it, you know, if the kid has a genuine heart change, then it, really there's no concern there to me.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Context is king. And a lot of people miss that. But I, I just wanted to address that because I, you know, I do tend to be in a lot of conservative, you know, family values circles. And that's great. And I I love that. But I do think that sometimes the context of it is missed. And I, I actually especially it, it's, you know, it's been a while since I've looked at Home Alone through the eyes of because this is the first time I let my kids watch. I'm like, well, let me look at it through the eyes of my children. And so it's like, oh, well, there's actually a lot of good to be had in this film and some teaching moments here. And and the, and again, the, the journey that Kevin is on that, that plays a, a really you know great foundational role of the film.
0: So I, lo- I thought for a long time that the black and white picture that you see Kevin watching was actually an original movie, uh, an older film uh, uh-huh. with something like James Cagney in it. I just I assumed that it from was. An early, yeah, I thought that from an early age because my parents always had the classic movie station on. And I saw some James Cagney, and uh, I didn't understand what the heck was going on. I just knew that they were criminals, and I didn't think it was all that interesting. But the the stuff in the movie was actually made up for the movie, and it oh, was okay. parodying a movie called Angels with Dirty Faces, and for the uh, the stuff shot for Home Alone, they called
2: it Angels with Filthy Souls.
1: Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, and I believe uh, Home Alone 2 actually features a sequel to the fake movie called Angels with Filthier Souls, or something to that effect. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one of the funnier gags played in the film. It's used a few times to great effect. First, we see Kevin uh, watching it at home by himself while eating a whole bunch of junk food and ice cream and marshmallows and chocolate sauce and all that kind of stuff. Yes, yes. And he's really gross, by the way. (laughs) It is. It is. But I mean, hey, he's an eight year old kid home by himself. Why not? And um, it, it scares him a little bit. He has to turn it off and he shouts out for his mom at that point. And then he realizes that he can take some of those scenes out of context and maybe have some fun with it. So he has the pizza guy come over and he scares the pizza guy off with a, a cheap tip and uh, gunfire. Keep the change, <laughs> I, you filthy animal. Exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, we get the ultimate payoff when he uses the same thing on Marv when he sort of snoops in on the back porch. And uh, he uses firecrackers to great effect. One, two, ten. One, two, ten. Keep the change, you filthy animal. It's just hysterical watching Daniel Stern's character run off, slipping and sliding on his way, uh, and then hysterically try and explain to Harry in the van, oh man, this guy just got killed. There was a guy named Snakes. I I I swear I've heard that voice before, and (laughs) it's just a a funny gag that's done really, really well in the the film.
1: Oh yeah, that, that the firecracker scene is one of my favorite. And you do have to have like the build up of Kevin being scared of the movie, you know, and the whole machine gun fire thing and like that that all. And then and then he's more comfortable with the movie, he's playing bits of it, and then he comes and he uses the firecrackers to to make it sound like it's really happening, you know, and it it, it they definitely that's one of my favorite scenes. He uses it to great effect and I it's, that is one of the scenes where my kids were just rolling on the floor laughing as he's shooting off these firecrackers. And and he's and then, of course, they cut to Kevin's face, and he's fake laughing with the maniacal laughter from the, from the screen. Like, ah! Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. It. It's great. Made me think of the
1: Joker. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: well, another one of the things that I liked growing up was the house itself. I thought it was oh, a yeah. perfect staging ground for the the showdown. And my, the house I grew up in was not nearly as interesting, but I, I tried to make believe that it was and play out scenes like this in my head. <laughs> but um, the, the house itself today is, uh, is pretty interesting. It's considered a tourist attraction. Oh. So it says here on IMDb that it sold for $1.5 in 2011. And the house is promoted as a tourist attraction. It's cited as an example of how to get your home in the movies. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Uh, Interesting pitch. And uh, I just thought that that was intriguing because the house always stood out to me. I I, I suppose then, although I haven't found this for sure, but they used the interior as well as the outside. And I remember a few years ago, uh, Ben Stiller was shooting films here locally and, he had a couple of scenes where he was shooting them in my parents' subdivision, and so they were out jogging through the neighborhood, and they had uh, dolled up the neighborhood to look good for the film. And, it hey, it was a good neighborhood, but they, they actually spray-painted the grass green. Uh, <laughs> of course. Then, then other scenes, though, for the interior of the subdivision were using ha- houses in the subdivision across the street from my parents' subdivision. So not all the stuff was shot in one place. So I, I don't know how often this happens anymore, but it's neat to see a film where your location inside and outside is basically the same place.
2: Yeah. And it definitely yeah, yeah. provides a, a great playground for Kevin. You've got the basement area. You've got a couple floors of working space and then you've got the cable leading to the tree house. And uh, so he's got, he's got lots of working room for his little traps and knickknacks to ensnare the the burglars with.
1: Yeah, I definitely love the house. I will say Um, I, I remember thinking as a kid and I, my opinion hasn't changed having watched it again last night that this, this house is pretty ritzy. Like it looks about four or five times the size of my current house (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) definitely something way beyond what I could ever afford. So they're, they're apparently well to do the McAllisters.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I got that impression, but, uh, maybe then it just, uh, you know, contributes to the problems that they have when they start the film and why they forgot their son in the first place because of their lifestyle.
1: (laughs) Definitely. I don't know. Definitely. So, I thought we could talk about favorite scenes just because uh, we've kind of talked about the themes of the movie and and stuff like that. and And I've already mentioned the firecracker scene, but there's several other scenes. and I, I think that each of us can can probably contribute to some favorite scenes of the film. Um, and and my uh, I, I love I love the firecracker scene. One of my favorite scenes, though, believe it or not, it's not in, in, it's a very short scene. It happens very quickly. But I really love when old man Marley the climax where he comes and he saves Kevin like because that he starts out at the film at the beginning of the film you know thinking that old man Marley is this murderer and believing the story that Buzz had told him and then you you have the scene in the church which is really good. I love the scene in the church too. Um and so I you know you you have him getting to know him and then in the end he saves Kevin. Because Kevin made one small miscalculation and was about to uh, about to bite it. <laughs> Basically, he was about to be killed by these robbers. And old man Marley comes and saves him. I love that scene. It's it's so powerful. Any any favorite scenes for you guys? Um, so I've already talked a lot about how I like the the physical comedy,
2: and so I thought I'd mention John Candy's introductory scene. Uh, <laughs> we, we didn't mention him on the cast list, but Polka? he, he Polka, makes an Polka, appearance Polka, Polka? here. Right. And that's that's so funny because he goes on for like two minutes trying to uh, jog her memory that it doesn't exist about this, this polka band. And, I, I, you know, I look away from the screen to do something or take a bite of my food or whatever. And I look back up. Oh, he's still going on about the polka stuff. And that's that's exactly the <laughs> it. It was very uncomfortable. Right. It's so funny because, uh, how he Excuse commits Excuse Did, did, did you that.
1: say you could help me? <laughs> yeah, John Candy doesn't have a
2: huge part in this movie but that scene where we first meet him it, it, it makes me laugh so much yeah yeah definitely and then I just thought I'd talk uh real quick also about the old man Marley in the church um what I like about that scene is that you see old man Marley actually considering Kevin's advice like it's not just a old man talking to a kid it's an old man taking advice from a kid, a kid who's living a more innocent life. And he, he still has his whole life ahead of him. And here he is more towards the end of his life. And he's got this damaged relationship with his son and this distant relationship with his granddaughter. And so he, he actually considers Kevin's word as actual advice. And you wouldn't normally see that in a lot of situations. You'd you'd see maybe the other way around, but here are two people meeting in a mutual or uh, uh, a neutral area. And, they are taking advice from each other and that's where the, the heart of the film comes from is making amends and apologizing and admitting when you're wrong and always, always going back to your family because that's what you've got. I think that
0: my favorite bits of the film tie back to the, uh, the heart and soul of the film. One of the musical themes of this uh, film by Williams was the song called Somewhere in My Memory mm-hmm. and that really stuck with me as a child. That resonated with me for a long time after seeing the film. And it was the kind of thing I liked to listen to in the car after Christmas. And uh, yeah, I I like, I like comedies and all, but usually they don't stand out to me with that kind of resonance, but the song really was exceptional. And it's a part of my Christmas tradition. I I like to listen to that with a family and uh, it's in my favorite, you know, Christmas volume one playlist I return to all the time. So Mm -hmm. when I think fondly back on this film, I'm reminded of that song and, uh, that's the, the the scene that still connects with me, and uh, you know, it's it's funny to think about things like that where uh, Kevin, I respect your wishes, DJ, didn't actually <laughs> hear the song, but it's something that we hear while he's reflecting on things, and but we hear it. And it totally works. It's too bad that Kevin never got to hear the song because it's uh, it's out there for just our listening ears.
1: Yeah, yeah. On the on the uh, on the note of the soundtrack, um, it, it is definitely something I listen to a lot more. Would come Christmas time. I have the main title theme. I have like a, a playlist of themes, and so the main title theme I listen to a lot. But during this time of year, I will definitely put on the actual full soundtrack album a whole lot more, just because it's very Christmassy. And, of course, John Williams, you know, uh, does a fantastic job with it, and uh, it's it's uh, it's good stuff, for sure.
2: The way the film opens, it, you, you've got the blank screen, and all of a sudden you get the, the opening to the Somewhere in My Memory theme, and then it goes into this sort of mischievous, playful, light, celeste, piano kind of theme, the bum bum ba da dum bum, bum ba and that, that's like the Home Alone theme, you know? Everybody knows that, and everybody knows Somewhere in My Memory. And uh, they're, they're beautiful pieces of music, they fit the... the mood of the film very well and the sort of mischievous nature of of Kevin and the playful uh, banter in between the villains and it, it's yeah. just it's gorgeous yeah. and then uh, probably my favorite track overall is one called Setting the Trap uh, which is like a combo of the Carol the Bell's theme that everybody knows and it goes into some original music after that and that's what we hear while Kevin is preparing the house. And uh, it, it, it's just a, a fun little track with lots of percussion and horn and some more celeste. And uh, it's just classic John Williams stuff.
1: Yeah, I like setting the trap as well. And, and I part of that is because I love Carol of the Bells. Like, I love that tune. And when, it, when it's done right. I've, I've actually heard it done really poorly, and that's, I hate it. But when it's done well, and it's well integrated into this track, and, and it, it works really well in the context of the movie and then just to listen to. So that is, that is a good one. Overall, I mean, there's there's nothing at all bad about any of the soundtracks, so it's it's hard no. to say, oh, this is my favorite or this one. But there's there's definitely some good moments in that soundtrack. Um, and then of course you can't talk about favorite scenes without, and I'm just going to blanket say all of the beating up of the criminals, <laughs> like just all every of bit of that, <laughs> all of it. It is so good, and it's there's not a wasted moment. It all plays really well. Um, you know, every, every little gag, you know, you can, you, there were several times when, uh, especially my oldest Alan, he was watching and he would start laughing just even before it happened. Cause he could see it coming. <laughs> he could see exactly what was going to happen when he started walking up the stairs of the tar. And then he remembered seeing Kevin do the nail thing. And he's like, Oh, <laughs> it was, it was hilarious just watching that. So there was a, <laughs> there was definitely a new depth to watching this film with my kids last night. What?
0: what what happened get that little...
2: <laughs> yeah every time so, yeah. the bullies get injured feels like a, a well-placed joke with a great punchline oh, yeah. and good comedic timing and uh like i said i laugh every time and this movie also has some of the best movie screams of all time uh kevin has a couple <laughs> of really good ones like the first time he sees old man marley on the front drive and then the time <laughs> when uh the Marv and Harry almost run him over in the van and he just sort of stares at the front bumper as it gets an inch (laughs) away from his face. Hey, watch out! (laughs) And then uh, probably the best one in the whole film is when Marv is laying on the floor with a tarantula on his face and he (laughs) just screams absolute bloody murder. (laughs) And uh, uh, fun trivia about that particular scene, What we see is him miming, screaming with a tarantula on his face, because, you know, to film that scene, they actually put the spider on his face. And I can't imagine screaming like that with a spider on your face would end up very well for you. So he mimed the scream and then they dubbed it over later, which is just a fun piece (laughs) of trivia.
1: Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I'm I'm sorry like if I was an actor, I'd have to draw the line and be like <laughs> that's that's gonna be a CG spider or a fake spider or that you're not putting a real tarantula on me. That's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, what else do we have to say about this film? We need to start wrapping it up. So uh let let's let's talk about our final thoughts, uh kind of how it's how it's fared over the years and, and your ratings and that sort of thing. Chad, you can go first. Over the years, I I think I just appreciate this
2: film more still for the comedy, but also again, just more for the heart. I I love the themes of family and apologizing and holding your loved ones close this time of year, especially. And, um, I love my family and I want to hold them close. And I imagine if, if I was left to one day all alone and I didn't have any of them with me, I'd be pretty upset eventually too, or maybe even straight away. I mean, I, maybe for a split second, I'd enjoy the aloneness, but Hey, I love my family and I, I want them to be there with me, especially around Christmas. And so I, I definitely identify with that more over the years. And I'm sure as I uh, eventually have children of my own, I will connect with it on an entirely different level. And overall, I guess, I mean, I don't know how I would rate this exactly, probably three, three and a half out of five, maybe even four. It, it's just, a, a it's a, I, I'm not in the habit of rating things as much anymore, but, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I do enjoy this film and I would definitely recommend it, recommend it to anybody.
1: Great. Joe.
0: I, I think I figured out what it
1: is.
2: I
0: think I got burned out on movies that had this quality of humor throughout them growing up because one of the other family favorites was 101 Dalmatians
1: ah. by Walt Disney. Which and also that stars is a Daniel film, Stern.
0: Yeah. And it just seems like a refinement on this kind of humor and charm and oh, man, we watched that movie all the time and I-, I didn't mind it so much then, but I think it just kind of wore out. And so while I think that this is a good film and I certainly understand why it appeals to the fans, it's, uh, it's just really hard for me to be, uh, fair to the film. Um, there are still things about it that really, uh, struck a chord with me. I, I will, really I haven't shown it to my kids yet, but I know I'm going to enjoy sharing it with them. And, um, talking about, you know, what life was like for us kids when we were around in the nineties, it was, it was just like home alone.
2: I just want to briefly step in and retract my previous statement. Howard Stern or Daniel Stern is not in 101 Dalmatians. I was thinking of, uh, what's his name? Uh, goodness. I'm not sure. Uh, Hugh Laurie, (laughs) Hugh Laurie and Mark Williams are the, the Ah. bumbling idiots
1: in that film. And for some reason I
2: connected Hugh Laurie.
0: Yeah. yeah, It's very similar characters. Yes.
1: Okay. Well, I will I did want to point out though a piece of trivia. Daniel Stern is the voice of Dilbert in the short-lived Dilbert uh, cartoon series from 1999 to 2000 which works beautifully. Um, And I I actually love that dearly. I've seen all the episodes and some of them are pretty stupid as you would expect. Uh, So a little piece of trivia there. Daniel Stern was the voice of Dilbert and he was perfect. In fact, all the voices in that cartoon are pretty perfect for the characters. Mm. Anyway, uh, so that's a little aside. Um, I love this film a lot. It is part of our Christmas tradition. We will watch it at some point during December, the month of December. Uh, My wife and I in the previous years have watched it and now this year we've started including our older children. So that's a lot of fun. This movie was a big part of my childhood. Um, Like I just, I remember it very fondly. Um, I remember watching it on uh, when at the time we never had it on VHS or anything, and I didn't see it. We didn't go to see hardly any movies in the theater when I was a kid. But I remember seeing catching it on TV uh, when it would, you know, during the Christmas season, it'd be playing somewhere, and we'd catch it, and we'd all sit down as a family and watch it and pop some popcorn. You know, we knew when it was coming on because they had these things. I don't know if you kids know this, but they had these things called TV guides. that would tell you when things were playing. Mm, And it's very odd since now we just watch things whenever we want, but that's how we did it back in the day. So I have these fond memories and, uh, yeah. And I've, I've talked about all the reasons why I love this film. So, uh, it's, it's going to be a four out of five star film for me. And I know nostalgia probably plays a part in that. And I'm not saying that I'm completely objective, but I do love this movie dearly. And, uh, it's part of my tradition.
0: It's a good, it's a good choice, TJ.
1: Good. I'm glad you approved, Joe. <laughs> well, I think that's going to wrap up this episode of Retake. Um, so, thank you guys very much for listening. I hope that you have enjoyed this film as much as we enjoyed talking about it and watching it ourselves. Well, Chad and I, anyway. Uh, so, uh, Chad, why don't you uh, tell the fine folks where they can find more of you? You, you have stuff you'd like to promote now. You, you're, a, I do. you're, an, you're an independent podcaster.
2: I am. I have the Cinescope Podcast, which is a show about celebrating the movies we love. No criticism, just exploring movies we like and why we like them. And so you can find me there at the com and on iTunes as the Cinescope Podcast. And then you can follow me personally on Twitter at chadadada. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And
1: Joe.
0: You will find me on Twitter. I am JCS Darnell. And if you want to catch me podcasting, I'm over here at Night Owl.
1: And you can find me on Twitter as well. I am TJ Draper Pro. So if you have thoughts about this film, be sure to tweet them to us. We'd love to talk to you about them. We had a couple of tweets from our episode last week. So that was a lot of fun. Um, so people are definitely uh, listening. That's always fun to know that people actually <laughs> heard what we had to say. So I had fun interacting about the episode last week. So please do that again this week uh, and tell us how you feel about uh, this film, uh, Home Alone. And you can find uh, this show on the Night Owl website that is nightowl.fm you can find night owl on twitter at Nightowl.fm, fm and of course please take some time to rate and review the show in itunes i can't stress how important that is in helping us reach an audience which is important to keeping the podcast running so with that we're going to sign out next week uh we have plans for a, a special guest who used to be on the movie Bite podcast from time to time And uh, he is hopefully going to join us next week to talk about Die Hard. And that guest will be Fizz, Mikey Fizzle. And uh, he has said he's, I think he said 90%, I think was the percentage he used. He's 90% sure he'll be able to do that with us. So look forward to that next week. Die Hard is the modern Christmas film, in my opinion. So we'll be looking forward to talking about that next week. So thanks, y'all, for listening. Ta-ta. Goodbye.
2: Keep the change, you filthy animal.